Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control. We are confirming acquisition of your signal. You are live in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Gardens of the Galaxy, the podcast for all of the sentient beings in the universe who have a passion for plants. I'm Emma the Space Gardener and I will be your host as we explore gardening on Earth and beyond. Here in the British portion of planet Earth, the Royal Horticultural Society compiles an annual list of the pests and diseases that have been vexing gardeners, based on the number of pleas for help they receive on each one. In 2020, when the pandemic kept us all closer to home, they received an 88% increase in pest and disease inquiries, with many gardeners reporting damage to potato and bean crops and to clematis and hostas in the flower borders, slugs and snails returned to their number one spot as our most problematic pests. As it's Halloween and it's prime slime time, I thought I would investigate the nightmarish topic of snails in space! (laughs) You're probably thinking pests are one problem space gardeners don't have to deal with, but we send pest species into space all the time. In 1947, the USA sent fruit flies into space atop a V2 rocket. As the first animals in space, they were part of a series of experiments studying the effects of cosmic rays on living organisms. Since then, humanity has never stopped sending insects into space. They make pretty good research subjects, they're light and don't take up much space, and no one complains if they don't make it back to Earth alive. Those first intrepid fruit flies did, by the way. We also send pests as food sources for predatory species we want to study. We've sent aphids into space with ladybirds, for example. Any insects sent into space for an official experiment will be well under control, and the astronauts are unlikely to find any fugitive fruit flies snacking on their lunch. What I wanted to know was whether they had ever been bothered by any unwanted insect hitchhikers. In July 1975, a historic mission blasted off from Kennedy Space Center. An Apollo rocket lifted three astronauts aloft, Thomas Stafford, Vance Brandt and Deke Slayton. They would be shaking hands in space with the crew of a Soviet Soyuz spacecraft. In the meantime, however, they were preoccupied about what to do with a Florida mosquito that had made its way on board. Mission controllers suggested they use it as the subject of an improvised experiment. The crew had other ideas. Vance Brand was quoted in the New York Times saying, We thought we would feed him ourselves for a few days, and then feed him to our experimental fish. Another alternative is to bring him back alive and give him a pair of astronauts' wings. What happened to the mosquito? No one knows for sure. The official report said it disappeared and was assumed to have died. One thing's for sure, it would not have been invited to that first international meeting in space. In March 1982, Columbia launched on NASA's third space shuttle mission, but it had picked up a stowaway at Cape Canaveral in the form of a fruit fly that proceeded to buzz around the cabin. It was an annoyance, but the crew had bigger things to worry about. And speaking of fruit flies, the STS-61A space shuttle mission carried ESA's space lab into orbit and launched at the end of October 1985. On the 4th of November, normal operations aboard Challenger were disrupted by a fugitive fruit fly the crew named Smart Willie. Unfortunately, Willie didn't seem to enjoy its hard-won freedom. Unable to fly in zero-g, it tumbled and floated about and grabbed onto any surface it could find. History doesn't seem to have recorded much more about Willie, but I doubt it survived to the end of the mission. On STS-41D in August 1984, Mike Mullane took direct action against an unwanted insect passenger aboard Discovery. As he told NASA's oral history project, 
and then I see a mosquito trying to fly in weightlessness. It was August that we were launching. Those mosquitoes down there, just clouds of them down at the launch pad area. So one of them had gotten in while we were strapping in and it was wiggling around trying to figure out how to fly in weightlessness. And I nailed that thing. Wham! The last thing I wanted is to have a mosquito running around in that cockpit. So we send pair species into space on purpose to study them and they occasionally stow away in spaceships despite our best intentions. But what about our gardening nemesis? Have snails made it into space? The encouraging news is that I can find no evidence that we've sent slugs into space, but snails certainly have been added to the list of animal astronauts. In fact, British astronaut Helen Sharman took snails with her when she visited the Mir space station in 1991. Helen didn't do any work with those snails. She stowed them in a part of the space station that was subject to a minimum of vibrations, then brought them back with her eight days later. In 2005, a photon biosatellite launched from Baikonur with 385 kilos of science experiments on board, including some snails. Another photon mission launched a year later, also with snails. This second mission, Photon M3, also carried a cockroach called Nadezda, which is Russian for hope. In space for 12 days, Nadezda gave birth to 33 offspring on her return to Earth. These were the first Earthlings known to have been conceived in microgravity. So there have been cockroaches in space, but we were talking about the snails. Why did the researchers send snails into space? It's because gastropods have a gravity-sensing organ called a statocyst, and it's similar to the gravity-sensing apparatus found in mammals. It involves a mass of calcium carbonate particles called staticonia, and a layer of cells designed to detect when they move around. If you want the full scientific details in all their glory, you can read the resulting scientific paper, which is called Functional Changes in the Snail Statusist System Elicited by Microgravity. The scientists wanted to know whether the nervous system could adapt to changes in gravity and whether animals as a whole could adapt to changing gravity states, whether they were being blasted into space or returning from a spell in microgravity. They chose terrestrial snails Helix leucorum as their slimy astronaut candidates. One advantage is that the snails are small, so they could send quite a few in a small volume. Snails are also tough and can stay active in small spaces for weeks on end. And we've been studying snails for a while, so we have a reasonable understanding of their behaviour and its underlying causes. At least on Earth. They also sent up some smaller snails, Helix aspersa, and the flight habitat was divided into two chambers to keep them separate. Snails are a bit unusual because they can hibernate and estivate, which is the summer version of hibernation. The researchers wanted to avoid them entering into such a low metabolic state, so they provided plenty of food and water and kept the payload in an optimum temperature range. In addition, charcoal filters were used to prevent the growth of fungi and algae. When they cracked open the capsule on its return to Earth, it was clear that the snails had been munching through the grub the whole time. On Earth, snails climb up plant leaves, which often bend downward under the snail's weight, leaving the snail facing downward. The snail senses it is facing downwards and reorients itself to face back up the leaf. This natural response is called negative gravitaxis. The researchers tested the snails before and after the flight, and they found that after a period in microgravity, they reoriented themselves more quickly. In April 1998, Space Shuttle Columbia launched with the Neurolab on board. Over the course of 16 days in orbit, six mission specialists carried out 26 different projects to increase our understanding of the mechanics responsible for neurological and behavioural changes in microgravity. 
the NeuroLab mission was NASA's contribution to the decade of the brain, and as well as experimenting on themselves, the crew took along animal subjects, rats, mice, crickets, fish and snails. But these weren't common or garden snails, they were freshwater snails. They flew in the closed equib-related biological aquatic system, CBAS, mini-module, a mid-deck locker-sized freshwater habitat designed to allow the controlled incubation of aquatic species in a self-stabilising artificial ecosystem for up to three weeks under space conditions. Looking after them and the sword-tail fish was the job of the aquatic team and they wanted to study the development of gravity sensors in space by animals in the early stage of life. On Earth, our gravity-sensing organs develop to a certain size and then stop, a process that is dependent on the presence of gravity. So the researchers wondered whether, in microgravity, those organs would grow larger than they do on Earth and what effect that might have on the animals. The results did show that the space-flown snails produced a larger volume of staticonia. And there have definitely been snails on the International Space Station. In May 2008, a Progress resupply mission carried 90 snails to the ISS for Expedition 17. They would spend five months in orbit and were the seventh and final batch sent as part of a Russian three-year study. In fact, sending snails into space is an international obsession. China launched the uncrewed Shenzhou-8 space capsule in October 2011. The mission was designed to investigate using algae to generate oxygen on long-duration space missions as part of a closed-loop life support system. It contained a vessel filled with nutrient solution and two different types of algae. A trio of snail astronauts were also included. Members of a small tropical freshwater species, Bolinus australianus, the snails weighed only a tenth of a gram and really didn't need a lot in the way of oxygen. Still, by the time the capsule returned to Earth, only one of the snail tronauts was still alive. The experiment was designed by Liu Yongding, a professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He said that in the miniature ecosystem, algae were the producers providing oxygen and food, snails were the consumers, and microbes carried by the snails were helping the decomposing process. He chose snails rather than fish because snails are better equipped to survive in the harsh environment and they take up only a small area. Sadly, the last snail tronaut was killed shortly after landing to preserve its tissues in their microgravity state. Actually, when you look into it, we just can't stop sending snails into space. They've blasted off in suborbital rockets, satellites and space shuttles and made their way onto space stations. In fact, I'm surprised that no astronaut has yet had to wipe snail trails off the cupola windows. There's a saying in permaculture, you don't have a snail problem, you have a duck deficiency. So here's my advice for future space gardeners, remember to pack a duck. That's it for this episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a far less frightening show. We'll be hearing from Luke Fountain about his research into how plants use nitrogen here on Earth, which might help us to grow crops more sustainably in future, here on Earth and in space. Plus, Luke is part of a team working on an exciting citizen science space plants experiment, launching soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control, confirming termination of your signal. We have spoken to the engineering team about the smell you've reported and they have requested that you try stirring the WC tank. Mission Control out.